Rewind is a production of Wisconsin Eye. To keep programs like this free and accessible to all, please consider a charitable gift to wisi.org slash donate or text WISI to 44321. Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, your week in review. Governor Evers says he wants answers from Republicans about his state budget proposal. Plus, updated student vaccine requirements are suspended by the powerful Rules Committee. We explain what this means for parents and how state health officials are responding. And the political battle brewing over negotiating new terms to extend the Milwaukee Brewers lease at AmFam Field. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for March 10th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. J.R., we're getting closer to Joint Finance Committee mm -hmm. starting or about to start a, a budget tour. They do these every year to kind of go across the state and hear feedback from the public. We also know several Democrat and Republican lawmakers are hosting their own uh, public hearings in uh, their uh, area as well. So speaking about the budget, Governor Tony Evers was at a WizPolitics event uh, earlier this week, and he basically demanded Republicans to tell me what the damn plan is, was mm -hmm. the exact quote. And this comes out of a little bit of frustration because the past two budget cycles, joint finance chairs have immediately said, we are going to reject this, we are going to start from base and go that route. And he just wants to have more conversations of what he was actually saying is, hey, tell me what's in, tell me what's out, where can we reach a deal? But historically, this is what joint finance does. They go line by line and they tweak it to their liking. Um, so Republicans and Evers just continue to remain at odds over what to do with this projected surplus, which is now one point or excuse me, seven seven point one billion dollars. And both have indicated areas of compromise, which we've mentioned before, such as more aid to local governments and mental health funding. But what the final product will look like is going to take some time. So. First off, they can't agree on how big the, the surplus is. So remember that it's $7.1 in this fiscal year ends June 30th. That, though, is built largely on one-time money. What I mean by that is the federal government pumped so much COVID aid into the states, it drove collections up, it drove sales taxes up, those kinds of things, because uh, people have more money to spend. We didn't spend the money in this budget, so there was a bigger reserve than normal that carried over. And inflation has helped drive sales tax collections because it costs more to buy stuff. This is not going to last forever. Looking as we've talked before, the next two-year period, revenue growth is about $1.2 billion, roughly. So what Republicans are trying to say, there's not that much money, which is true, but it isn't. There is that much money. It's not ongoing money. So there's that issue. Two, with the governor, um, obviously, like you said, he's frustrated. Uh, but this is a normal process. Joint finance is going to have four public hearings. They start the first week of April with the first one. They do four. They will sometime around then have agency heads come in, some of them at least, testify. Going back over the last few years, that puts the first executive session sometime the first week of May, maybe second week of May. And then we go full tilt, as we remember, May through June till finance is done, and then the full legislature will vote on it. My questions remain, how often are Evers and Boss and Lemahieu meeting? They told us they're going to meet last week, for example. Are they making real progress? And is the governor shaping the discussion now? rather than waiting until the joint finance is done, because if he waits till they're done, 
that makes it much tougher to get more of what he wants. And what we're seeing, too, when we ask the governor and Republican leaders how those conversations are, they're not really telling us much of what they're talking about behind closed doors, but when cameras are in front of them, when it comes to attack one another, it's purely politics, especially with the budget and just other things like the Milwaukee Brewers and their uh, lease extension. We're going to get to that later in the show, um, but kind of politics per usual. But if they are actually you know, finding areas of compromise. We're not really knowing what those are quite yet. And two, Republicans aren't on the same page on a lot of things just yet. Remember, Robin Voss set a flat tax on a hill he wants to die on. We know that the co-chair from the Senate, Howard Markline last week said it, it's probably going to be in the budget. That's what uh, Mark Bourne, also the co-chair from the Assembly, said about a flat tax. Devin Lemahue, from what I've been told, is not giving up on the idea yet. I don't think he's very happy with Howard's comments at our luncheon last week. So there's still the divide about what they're doing tax policy. What are they going to do about the brewers? Or name your, your option, K-12 education, go on the road. Um, the caucuses aren't the same page yet, so it's hard to give a plan to because they have to figure that out, which is what joint, joint finance is going to do. So over the next several weeks, hopefully mm-hmm. we'll learn more about these areas and what the final, like you said, what is the final product going to look like? There's still big questions on shared revenue and how much uh, tax cuts they're going to give. Is it going to be impact all Wisconsinites? Is it just the top two uh, brackets? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Speaking of the budget, there was a new report this week by the Wisconsin Policy Forum that kind of warned some financial woes that could be down the road if lawmakers today enacted Governor Governor Evers' budget. So some of Evers' proposed spending increases are one time, but many would be ongoing, which would leave the state with a, quote, structural imbalance heading into the uh, 2025-2027 budget. That is according to the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum, which they warned in the report. Now, Evers' proposals for one-time spending, some of them include $750 million for broadband expansion, about $240 million for paid family leave, and $290 million to upgrade American Family Field in order and return for Milwaukee Brewers to extend their lease. So these are kind of just some you know, like they said, some warning signs, but we know they're not going to enact the governor's budget as is. But this is kind of what you just talked about in the beginning of the show is it, you really have to be careful of how much you want to spend because a lot of it will be one time and it won't be continuously down the road. And that same report warns if you do a flat tax, as Devin Lemmy, who has proposed, you also put the state in a precarious situation. Because remember, um, one-time money, uh, if you want to be conservative, you should be used one time, Right. If you take Governor Evers' approach in which you build up the base budget for K-12 education, the base budget means you only get it this time, it's your base going forward. You build off of that in the future. Um, you increase commitments in the future. So that structural imbalance they're talking about in the report, what they do is take, okay, if you take the current budget that Evers has proposed and put lock that in going forward, what do you have to grow revenue-wise to cover all that in future years? So that imbalance is it does take into account future revenue growth. However, um, I don't think we're going to see revenue growth like we've seen in the last few years. It's probably more like that we're seeing the, the current projection, about $1.2 billion, which is still good money. Right, Don't get right. me wrong. But it's not enough to cover some of these increases that Evers is proposing. They're not all going to get done. It's also not enough money to cover the flat tax that Lemmy Hughes proposed. We talked last week about that report from Crow. Uh, a group at UB Madison that was founded by was conservative money, so it's not a liberal outfit. So look, even if you score a flat tax with a dynamic scoring, which accounts for other growth and activity, it's still going to drop, rev- would drop revenues by about $3.9 billion the first year fully implemented. 
They propose going to a higher flat tax than what Lemahieu proposed, a 3.25. The problem is, if you go higher than Lemahieu wanted, you're raising taxes on the lower levels. That's the, the problem with the flat tax, because we have these four brackets right now. They want to lower the top one, Republicans do, because many reasons. But if you try to raise the lower ones, you're raising taxes on people at the bottom of the scale. Right. So we're not trying to diminish the over $7 billion surplus, but it's likely this is a rare opportunity, a one-time opportunity, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of money that we're not going to see because of, like you said, yeah. federal pandemic aid really helped build this massive surplus. But that's really the main argument right now. Mm -hmm. Evers says this is one-time money. We have it. Let's spend it now. Republicans, as conservatives, want to be careful. Let's also now talk about the state Supreme Court race. We now have it locked down that both candidates, Janet Protosiewicz and Dan Kelly, will be participating, or both, I should say, both have agreed to participate in one debate that you and I will mm -hmm. both be on the panel. It will be hosted by the state bar and co-hosted, it's all co-hosted, State Bar Association, with Politics, and WICS-TV, Channel 3000, uh, here in Madison. So they'll be hosting the matchup. It will be held on March 21st. So looking forward to that, but I think we can already kind of preview what the issues are going to be. You know, we have one candidate, Janet Protosiewicz, who has been very outspoken on two critical issues that the high court could be hearing, redistricting and abortion. Meanwhile, we're hearing more of the messaging from Dan Kelly about him sticking to the Constitution. You know, so those are things that are likely going to be come mm -hmm. up. And, you know, questions are too, JR, looking behind the politics of it, this became political, right? Uh, Dan Kelly, committed to several other forums and debates. I want to say about 10. Um, but, you know, we're seeing this trend a little bit more often, which we'll get into later in the show. But oftentimes this becomes political because Dan Kelly, he has a little less money than Janet Protosiewicz. He wants to go head to head with her. But in theory, does she have to, right? Um, the person who's trailing wants more debates. Right. It is a rule of thumb in politics because you want to elevate yourself on the same page as the person who has the more resources, the person who has more resources wants to minimize the number of debates because you want to minimize the number of gaffes you could, or opportunities for gaffes you could commit. Mm -hmm. So this isn't a huge surprise. Um, it also kind of gets to the fact that this campaign is being driven by what's going on TV and digital ads right now. Um, we will put a lot of work in that debate between now and March 21st. Sadly, though, most people won't watch that debate. They'll see the ads, and that's what's driving this campaign. And so there's, there's a little upside for Pro Se, which to give opportunities for Kelly to elevate himself and for her to may, maybe say something she shouldn't or in, in an inarticulate way that comes back in a viral moment. It's also much later in this season, too, mm -hmm. which could have been a sense something the Protosewitz campaign was looking at when agreeing to how many and which ones they would choose because, you know, it's March 21st and then, you know, a week later it's... That's the first day of early voting, I believe, for the spring election. So that could also be something campaigns usually look at, right? People already cast their ballots. So if there was something to come up or she goofed and said mm -hmm. something she didn't want to and it turns into an ad, well, maybe some people already cast their vote. All right. This week in the state capitol, also the powerful rules committee, Republicans voted to block new vaccine policies put forth by the Department of Health Services. Now, the vaccine policies related to meningitis, whooping cough immunizations, and that a past chickenpox infection, if you wanted to opt your child out of that, you had to show proof of documentation by a qualified medical professional. So this was something that DHS announced last month we knew that from Senator Noss that he had an issue with this, and oftentimes that we hear from the co-chairs um, on the Rules Committee is that they overstep their authority. They're trying to do something without coming to us first. You have to come through the legislature. Uh, Senator Noss called these 
vaccine, updated policy, vaccine policies, arbitrary and capricious. Um, let's just first take a listen to kind of a, a heated moment during the hearing on Tuesday. I should probably set the scene first. There was uh, several anti-vaxxers there that spoke and DHS was also testifying first. And Senator Nas basically asked the question to some state health officials, you know, how can we trust you? How can we have faith in you after the COVID-19 pandemic? Because a lot of Republicans had issues with the state lockdowns, uh, the vaccine requirements that were in place, and just the whole, I guess, looking back at it, the whole pandemic as a whole, they Mm -hmm. took issues with a lot of um, issues or a lot of things that uh, DHS tried to direct individuals to curb the spread. So let's just take a listen to Senator Nas uh, questioning state health officials. How do we trust you or the department? In the spring of 2020, I was on a conference call with you and a number of my colleagues, and it was regarding COVID and the shutdown. And you had mentioned then that we could be shut down through 2020 and into the spring of 2021, which was shocking. And so when we look at that past history and a number of things that were just flat out wrong and kids have been harmed because of the school shutdowns. How do we trust you? And uh, honest to God, that made me so angry back then. And and even now, I'll be honest with you, when I see you, I refer to you as Wisconsin's Dr. Fauci. I don't recall saying that I anticipated that the state would be shut down, whatever that means, for, for more than a year. But I very likely said that we could be dealing with a deadly pandemic for a period of time that could be over a year. We saw large numbers of people dying in places like New York City and Detroit, and we got together using the best information we had to create strategies of how were we going to prevent that from happening in Wisconsin. You build trust through familiarity, and so that's why I made a point to say I'm actually very grateful to be here so we can have the conversations, so that we can get to know each other better, and you can have some level of trust that the things that I'm saying are coming from a place of deep care about public health in Wisconsin. So first, let's talk about what the policies DHS wanted to enact. It would have required students entering the seventh grade to get vaccinated against meningitis and for incoming high school seniors to get a booster shot. Um, They also, like I mentioned with the chickenpox policy, uh, what we heard from some testimony from uh, people who are against vaccines is that, you know, how are we supposed to prove um, my child had chickenpox if I never took them to the doctor? And that's what uh, the other co-chair, Representative Nylon, took it, kneeling, excuse me, had an issue with, is that there's going to be people who didn't go to the doctor. How are they going to prove this? So there was issues uh, that they didn't really like about these rules. And, Jared, this is actually not even a new concept. Um, this was something that JCRER challenged in 2020, um, or 2020, excuse me. <laughs> 2020 as well. So it was, they were just blocking the, mm-hmm. the same rules over again. So like this is not about COVID, but it is driven by COVID. So there's nothing about the COVID vaccine in these rules at all. There's no COVID ma- vaccine mandate in Wisconsin, nothing like that. But COVID opened the door to a segment of the Republican base or people who are dr- attracted to Republicans because of this issue that object to vaccine mandates, period, and are driven by a fear of like the COVID vaccine. Well, if that one I fear A, B, and C about the COVID vaccine. What about this? Now you're hearing this more of this push toward personal freedom choice. The healthcare community is saying, wait a second, if we don't vaccinate for these things, we open the door to bringing back all these not great things we eradicated. We're seeing, and this is, it's been an interesting thing. I've often argued that the political spectrum is not really a semicircle. 
it's a smiley face. Because if you go to the edges of that semicircle, you can start to draw a line where they meet down here. There's been an anti-vax movement on the far left, and now on the far right uh, for years, worried about, well, what's this going to do? I don't want this in my body. I want personal choice, right? Which I can understand and expect. But then you know, again, you have the healthcare being saying, well, wait a second, but if you do that, then you're not getting vaccinated and you're opening the door to polio coming back. All these bad things that we eradicate, stamped out, coming, making you come back. That's not a good thing. Um, also want to mention, too, that news that happened on Friday after we taped the show deals with um, Congressman Glenn Grothman. He did commit that he wants to run another term, and he's already served uh, five two-year ter- yeah, two terms. He was first elected in 2014, and he pledged, similar like to mm-hmm. Senator Ron Johnson, that I'm only going to you know, work this X amount of years. Uh, and then he kind of said, well, I still got some more work to do, so I want to stay in office if of course, he will have to go through an election. Um, but kind of just a similar trend that we're seeing, that these these pledges um, are not really being, uh, you know, fully committed to anymore. But it's a trend that's kind of happening nationwide. I, two reasons not going to hurt Glenn Grothman. Number one, um, didn't hurt Ron Johnson. I don't think these pledges mean a right. lot to voters. Number two, Glenn Grothman has a very, very, very Republican district. His only fear is being challenged from the right. So unless you can make a case that Glenn Grothman is not sufficiently conservative enough because of this one pledge... I don't know what the problem is going to be for Glenn. Um, he also is one of those conservative members of the Wisconsin delegation. Um, he works his district hard. I don't anticipate this being a problem for him in 2024. All right, let's get to stock picks. And we got more on the Supreme Court race. Big surprise. Yeah. It's going to be about ad spending because it is surpassing over $20 million now in total. So I've tracked at least $24, $25 million in spending. Um, looking post-primary, I'm around... Ten and change for the pro pro to say which side. I'm around five and a half ish for the pro Kelly side, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I want to talk about how it's being spent. So you have to understand first off that candidates get a better rate on TV when they buy ads than groups do. We call them gross ratings points, right? It's how often you see an ad. So if I am a candidate and I buy an ad, my dollar goes farther than the group because of the rate that I get. So to illustrate this. Um, looking at the next two-week period that began, kind of this past Tuesday, um, the conservative side is outspending the uh, liberal side. All right, um, WMC, through its Issues Mobilization Council, announced, well, it didn't announce it, we saw, attracted, a $3.2 million media buy going after Port of Sewage. Fair Courts America, funded by Dick Uline, the Illinois businessman and mega donor for Republicans, his group's in there half a million dollars. A couple of small groups are doing some stuff, too. Um, they're actually spending more on the on TV in that two-week period than Protosei, which is. But, actually, I think about 20% more. But she's getting about 28% more gross ratings points despite that. Again, because of the candidate uh, approach. What's really interesting here is if you dive, like, be a dork like I am, and dive into these filings in the Ethics Commission, you'll see that the conservative side has a lot of big donors giving money to WMC and Fair Courts America to run the ads. The liberal side is doing most of its work through digital ads while Port which runs the TV spots. What's happening is donors are attracted to her campaign. And remember, the state party gave her $2.5 million. Political parties can take unlimited contributions and make unlimited transfers to a candidate. By doing that, and I'm going to get, I'm going to bet you money that before this race is over, the state party will give more money to Port which than the $2.5 million. It makes a more efficient use of the dollar. On digital ads, though, there's no difference between... Um, a group and a candidate, what they pay for. So liberal groups, like a Better Wisconsin Together political fund, right? We've seen them go after Kelly. 
They did TV in the primary. Now that we move past that, it's moving all its efforts toward digital. I'm seeing all liberal groups doing digital ads or GOTV. That's the phone banks, the mail pe lit pieces, dropping doors, all that kind of stuff. That's where resources are going. The conservative side, I'm just now seeing Americans for Prosperity that's first canvassing filing with the uh, state about 200 grand digital ads, um, canvassing mail pieces. What's really interesting though is Daniel Kelly's not put a single ad on the air. Nothing on radio, nothing okay. on TV. The entire campaign, okay? Why is that an issue? Because if I look at the content, it is all either pro which anti-Portisewicz, or anti-Kelly. There is nobody defending Daniel Kelly on TV. Now, some digital ads, yes. There's a group uh, out of Virginia, I believe, doing a digital ad that somehow Kelly's going to stop uh, tra transgenderism in schools, you know, if he's elected to court. Not a big issue with swing voters. Maybe a niche issue for conservatives in the base, right? But nobody's on TV defending Kelly. That means he's getting defined by these ads on TV from which What have we seen? Abortion. Um, crime. They, crime. That he defended child molesters, right? There's nobody defending Daniel Kelly on TV and radio. That's a challenge for him. Now, go back to 2019. We saw a late surge of conservative money in that race that helped Brian Hagedorn. Right? Lisa Neubauer had raised way more money in part because she could write a big check to her campaign. She was spending more, but then the tide turned late and conservatives flooded the state with money and really pushed them over the top. My impression is it's different this time. There's a feeling of whatever Republicans put up, liberals are going to match. And by matching it through the party, and again, I haven't seen them transfer to her yet, but I'll bet there will be, right. but by going through the party and then going to her, she gets more in the end that she can put on the air. Look, conservatives can. It's just... It's a really smart media strategy by the liberal side, and I'm watching for when's Kelly able to get up and do something for him, because right now he's not doing much. Right, he hasn't spent any of his money, but mm -hmm. he, of course, has Fair Courts America. He just got money from WMC, or not money from, but yep. on his behalf. But when is he going to define himself, right? I mean, he is doing still a lot of interviews with the media, trying to get his messages across. Um, but that is something to watch for. Is he going to wait till the final weeks? As we know, the closer you get to an election, a lot more people are paying attention. Yeah. So that is something that maybe they're, they're holding out for. And I, I got to mention, I've had a number of Democrats ask me, why aren't Republicans using this playbook? Because they wrote it. In 2015, uh, Republican lawmaker Scott Walker changed campaign finance law the limits on, there were no limits on giving to county parties, or sorry, political parties back then, but a number of court cases had struck down various things that acted as a de facto limit on giving to a, a state party. They took that and then added the unlimited transfer part, right? But they're not using that playbook here. Now, one, the state GOP is not in great shape, financially hasn't been. Um, that might be an issue. Two, you know, there's a thought among some conservatives I talked to that one with WMC, um, if you give money to them, your identity remains secret, right? When they do stuff through the Issues Mobilization Council, you're not promoting who you are. Sometimes corporate money gets mixed in with that kind of stuff, which you can't do with a campaign. So there's that issue. And two, there's a sense among some conservatives that Kelly wants to make this race about protecting the Constitution, right. which is a laudable goal. It's not what excites voters, though, like abortion does. So there's a thought of, well, if we give money here, we might get a better message out of that Biden we get with Daniel Kelly. And, and that is the challenge, too. Like I mentioned earlier, he talks a lot about the Constitution, how he follows the Constitution. I mean, he's a professor, right? He, mm -hmm. he talks in a specific way, and he admits that. Um, but does that resonate with voters? I think that's the challenge. Is that the winning strategy? 
I mean, it lets for voters to decide, but um, yeah, that, that will be interesting if they do change the messaging going forward because we do know from past blog posts how Kelly's beliefs and values are when it comes to abortion. He's backed by anti-abortion groups, uh, state and national ones. So will he eventually start talking about it more is something that I'm watching for. I don't think so, but you know, when it comes down to the wire, maybe you do start talking about it to excite your base. Remains to be seen. All right, let's get to mix this week is the Milwaukee Brewers, which is all about this uh, plan and this proposal, specifically about Governor Tony Evers. He proposed $290 million to make upgrades at the stadium. Then in return, the Brewers would extend their lease until 2043. But the issue here is that we kind of thought, Jr. that Republicans weren't going to mm-hmm. say, all right, Governor, we're going to enact your plan. He put it in his budget proposal, but this week we heard from Assembly Speaker Robin Voss that that plan is dead. Which is, anybody who's been paying attention knows that that was pretty much through the day after right. Governor announced it. Because Republicans, A, will want their own stamp on it, and B, are not going to give Evers a win straight out, like, without tweaking it somehow. So... In talking to Robin after a hearing this week, he said he wants a deal more like what the Milwaukee Bucks did. So let's kind of look at the Milwaukee Bucks deal. With the Milwaukee Bucks, they had a mix of state and local money. There was the stadium district, or sorry, the, the uh, Wisconsin Center District in Milwaukee. It's this whole mix of funding, right? A little bit different situation, though, because with the Bucks, you had a situation where the stadium, um, the old Bradley Center, was built with private money but operated by a state entity, essentially, a, a private group created by a state. When the Bucks were sold, the team said, NBA said, look, either you guys build a stadium, we're buying the team back and moving it to either Las Vegas or Seattle, I think. Yeah. So there's pressure to do that, right? Um, there's also buy-in. There's a local component. There's a $2 charge on tickets. All kinds of stuff went into this mix. Remember, too, when the Bucks deal was proposed originally by Scott Walker, his idea was pushed aside quickly. He wanted to create this new stadium entertainment district, issue $220 million in bonding, pay it back with the money. Of the, that wasn't part of the final mix, right? So this is sausage making. It's going to change. The Brewers are different, though. With the Bradley Center, if the Bucks left, I mean, yeah, you could have concerts there. I mean, you kind of have this thing, like, what do you do with it? With the baseball stadium, there's no baseball team. There's no point in having a baseball stadium on this giant piece of land, right, in western Milwaukee County. Two, the stadium district is created to oversee uh, – sorry, American Family Field, Um, (laughs) when it was created, there's a contract requiring to do upgrades and maintenance. If we as a state don't do that, we could be sued. There's an issue there, right? So what are we going to see? Okay. Republicans outstate are not happy about the idea of giving more money to Milwaukee. I mean, you add up to, it's shared revenue for Milwaukee, it's a sales tax for Milwaukee, money for Milwaukee, Brewers, they're kind of going, this is too much because I'm getting pressure from back home of, like, why are you doing this? So how do you do it? Well, you know, they'll do something different. Uh, the assumptions are that Robin Voss will assuredly ask for more years in the lease, right, mm-hmm. to say I got a better deal than Evers did. There's an assumption that Senate Republicans want to have some kind of, like, dollar amount from the leader, ownership of the Brewers saying, we're doing X for maintenance ourselves. It's not all the state picking up the tab. What's the mix of the money going to be? Will it be all up front? Will it be like a little bit at a time? How are they going to do it? That's all to be determined. Be part of that sausage-making process. I will bet, though, there will be something done in the end. The question is, in the budget or standalone bill? Right. So. And they have time, too, right? I mean, this isn't something that needs to be done tomorrow or by the end of this year. Of course, sooner the better. Yeah. But they have time. 
So, if it's in the budget, Evers can play with the partial veto authority, rework it. If it's in a standalone bill, though, there's other challenge. If it's in the budget, at least, like let's say you're a Republican from pick your northwestern Wisconsin district. I don't like the Brewers' proposal. However, I like tax cut A, B, and C. Like the expansion of school choice, et cetera, I can vote for this. If it's a standalone bill, now you might have to get Democrats to vote for it. If you need Democrats to vote for it, you empower Democrats to change the package. That creates the, the challenge for leadership of how do you do this thing going forward. Right, and you mentioned a little bit too, it was Howard Markline at that same uh, luncheon that he mentioned, you know, his problem is, you know, convincing his constituents why they should care about the brewers. You know, mm -hmm. kind of my thing, it's not my backyard. I believe his quote was along the lines, how do you convince a farmer in my district that this is a good deal for taxpayers? Eber's proposal would use the state surplus. Mm -hmm. That's taxpayer funds um, yep. that's been sitting there. Um, and then also this week, uh, the Home Crew Coalition is what it's, Home Crew Coalition is what it's called. It's a group of nine members of community and business leaders, and their goal is to tout the economic benefits statewide that the brewers have brought to Wisconsin. So their kind of goal is, let's try to find a bipartisan solution here. I believe there was a similar coalition during the Bucks uh, Arena um, debate at the state capitol as well. So they're going to be working behind the scenes. Some of the individuals I spoke to on the coalition said they're trying to, you know, meet with lawmakers, you know, let's all you know, smile and try to get this done. I mean, there, there's going to be negotiating going on, um, but that is also something um, that happened with that. So we'll see what the mm -hmm. final product will look like. Uh, also, let's get to falling. Uh, debates. I already so, teased that we're going to talk more about this. It's We're seeing less and less, but, I mean, less and less voters are watching them, yeah. JR. So there are three Supreme Court debates in 2018 for open seat. There were two in 19 also for an open seat. One in 20, although that was impacted by COVID. I think it would have been more mm -hmm. if it weren't for that. The governor's race last year, one debate between Tim Michaels and Tony Evers, and that was a benefit to both of them. Evers didn't want to have that gaffe moment that goes viral. Michaels didn't really do himself any favors in the primary debates. He had a couple of things he said he had to go clean up afterward. That was okay for them. The Senate contest, there are two debates. At the time, it was believed that it was Mandela Barnes trying to avoid too many opportunities to say something off. It actually was a missed opportunity for him. He actually did kind of well in those debates and could have had that opportunity for a third or fourth one to maybe uh, help him a bit. But that said, generally speaking, they are becoming more an annoyance than a funny moment of campaign. We are not going to see a Kennedy-Nixon debate ever again, right? right? The question is, how do you avoid the viral moment where you say something off-putting to people that gets into an ad or into a social media kind of campaign? How do you stay on message? How do you avoid falling down rather than building yourself up? Also, don't forget, Republicans are saying for 2024, they don't want to be part of the presidential uh, debate commission process. I'm really watching to see in another year, do we have any presidential debates? Right. What's that going to look like? Right. It shows you the declining value of these things. As much as we put into them, cover them, focus on them, they're just not doing it anymore in terms of being a big the factor. people who want to watch them will watch them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the argument, too, some voters like them because you can see candidates uh, kind of in the wild, I like to describe it, right? They don't know the questions in advance. You get to see how they respond to on-the-fly questions and how they would be a future politician to, you know, just like reporters. We're the ones asking these questions at these debates. Um, so you kind of lose that of not seeing that because if you see a candidate on the campaign trail, you know, they probably know what to say. Sometimes they're pretty scripted of what they even say to us as reporters. Um, but in these times, they're asked questions that they don't know about in advance, and that is sometimes an opportunity that voters won't see. But 
general population, I mean, viewership is down about these political debates. So there's kind of just a, a tug and pull from both sides. Sure. All right. That will do it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.